gave you the time to stop, to think and to articulate your perfect Sunday, what would it look like? You could plan and prepare it in advance for it to, to pan out exactly the way that you wanted it to. What would it include? What would the elements be? Perhaps it would be spending time enjoying your favourite hobbies, the, the things that you can't do during the working week. Maybe it would be doing chores around the house, catching up on things that you otherwise would miss out on, like bits of DIY. Maybe it would be standing out in the freezing cold, supporting kids or grandchildren taking uh, part in sporting events. Maybe you're old school and your perfect Sunday would be church three times. Morning service, uh, sun uh, Sunday school for adults and then a gospel service in the evening. Or maybe your perfect Sunday would look something like heading out into nature, family and friends climbing up a mountain. Climbing up a mountain and being awestruck by what you see and experience there. And not just having that experience, but by being changed by what you see and coming down from that mountain with your family and friends encouraged and given a renewed sense of hope for life and the future that lies ahead. Well, actually, I think that last description is a pretty good description of a Sunday. And I think it's a description that comes, believe it or not, from the Great Commission. We're carrying on looking at Matthew 28, uh, verses 16 to 20. We've considered the last couple of weeks about who it is who has authority, whose voice it is that we're listening to. The fact that Jesus is one who calls us to come and then sends us to go. Last week we just thought about how wonderful and worth worshipping and listening to Jesus is. But I want us this morning to think about a template, a framework, a way of uh, organising and expecting to spend our time when we gather together in person and indeed online. The 11 disciples travelled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did you spot any of those elements of my fictitious perfect Sunday? heading up a mountain, being awestruck by what they saw, being changed by what they saw and coming down encouraged by what life will be like on the other side. I think here we have a pretty good framework for what we should expect and how we should organise our time together on a Sunday. When you read the Bible, what do you expect to get out of it? Do you expect maybe to make your way through a set passage so that you can read a little devotional piece that's been written by somebody else? If you do, great. That's very helpful. Do you expect to read a set portion of scripture so that you can answer some questions, maybe set by yourselves or set by somebody else? Helpful, 
great little practice. Do you read a set portion of scripture so that you can distill down one instruction or command or lesson that you can take with you and carry into the day? Great, wonderful practice to have. But I wonder how many of us read the scriptures just to be transformed by them, just to be overtaken by them, just to have our minds filled with them and transported into their world. Sometimes I think we miss out on so much that the Bible has to say to us because we read it in small, isolated chunks and we don't get the great sweep. And we don't miss, uh, we don't pick up on some of the points that are subtly being made. You know, there are patterns that repeat in scripture and until we see those patterns, perhaps we don't see everything that the scriptures have to say to us. Let me uh, take, for example, a discussion myself and JP were having this week. JP was asking me what I made of um, all of the uh, adopted children or the second children or the not expected children who seem to have prominence and place in the Bible story. Thinking of characters like Samuel in 1 Samuel who uh, becomes the, the new priest, the new judge over all of Israel, even though that wasn't really his birthright. Think of David himself in the book of 1 Samuel, who inherits um, the kingship, the crown, the authority, even though he's not Saul's son. He's like an adopted son to Saul. We thought of other characters in, in the stories of the patriarchs in Genesis, right through to how Adam is replaced by Jesus the true, the good, the proper son. And that there are these sorts of patterns, these ideas, these um, tropes almost that recur time and time and time again. And when we see them, when we spot them, we can understand something of the Bible's message to us. In that instance, I think that the message is, is wide, it's varied, at the very least of all, it's that we should expect, not by right, but by grace, to experience and to receive things from God. One of the other things that we can pick up on is not just patterns like that, but places, locations, where things happen that tie together stories that we might not put side by side. And one of those places is mountains in the Bible. It is amazing when you stop and when you look to see how many truly significant moments happen atop mountains or how many of the Bible's sort of famous leading main characters experience life-changing things up mountains. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Adam and Eve. We know Adam of Eve. Uh, they who began in the garden in Eden. Did you realize that the garden in Eden was at the top of a mountain? It doesn't say it explicitly. Um, but it's the place that's described as having rivers flowing out in many directions. And if you know about gravity and how water works its way around, that would need to be a high point, a high place. Ezekiel, when he's speaking about the Eden that was and the Eden that is to come, he speaks of it as a place that was on top of a mountain. Fast forward to Noah. Uh, Noah, we know, on the ark. And the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat. And that's the place where God then met with Noah and made a covenant with him. Abraham, really important figure in the Bible, whose whole life basically takes place in one of two spaces, Egypt or Upper Mountain. Uh, 
moving forward again, you could think of King David. Read the Psalms. Uh, David is obsessed. David is consumed by mountains as places of protection, of places of safety, primarily because they're places where he gets to be with his God. David was also the one who um, made it so that the ark moved up to the temple mount in Jerusalem. You can think of other characters as well and, and key occasions. Moses, ah, oh, Moses' life, the high points on top of mountains, receiving the Ten Commandments and the covenant with the people, being hidden in the cleft of the rock up the mountain and seeing the glory of God. You see, mountains continuously in the scriptures are places where people experience the presence of God, where they experience his glory, where they hear his voice, where, where life is lived as it's supposed to be lived. Which is where um, this quote kind of comes from, from a, a gentleman called Moses Lee. He's a Korean-American pastor for Maryland. This is what he says, salvation in the Old Testament is often viewed in spatial terms, where you are. Meaning that salvation is where Yahweh is, when we're in his presence. And more often than not, he says, Yahweh seems to be present and reveals himself to humanity upon mountains. If you've got eyes to see it over and over again, mountains being up the mountain is the place where the presence and the glory of God is revealed and experienced and enjoyed by people. Which begins to make more sense of the life Jesus lived, of how often and how common mountains were in his experience. You see, each of the Gospels records Jesus going up mountains to pray alone when he was seeking the Father. It was up the mountain that he went. We read in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7, the, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus speaks out, teaches this new Torah to the people. The law, what his kingdom will be like, where that is revealed, it's up a mountain. Jesus is transfigured up a mountain. His glory is glimpsed by a couple of his closest followers. Jesus died on a mountain. You see, mountains are constantly important. And that begins to make sense when we understand it as a place where Jesus can experience God and reveal God as well. And so... Jesus calling the disciples to see him, to witness him, after he's been raised again here, before he's about to send them out up a mountain, is not an incidental detail. It's not just Matthew recording the fact that this is where it happened to happen. This is important because it helps us to see this is a place, this is a time, this is a space where they are going to see and experience the glory of God. And you know that that is exactly what happens because not only are they there on the mountain and that's what we should be expecting, but because when they see him, they worship. Think about that. Now here before them is the risen Son of Man, the one who has died and defeated sin and defeated Satan and defeated death who has from the grave birthed this new, real, lasting, eternal life. And he is right there before them. 
Jesus hadn't been shy about telling them of his love and the Father's love for them and for humanity. Jesus hadn't been shy about telling them his plan to come and to give himself as a sacrifice, as a ransom for the salvation of many. Jesus hadn't been shy to say that he would not just die, but he would rise to life three days later. They'd heard all about that. They had that knowledge, but now, up this mountain, they got to see it. Jesus hadn't been shy about how good he is or how good God is, but now it is right there in front of them. It is their experience. They can know without a shadow of a doubt the goodness, the kindness, the love, the graciousness, the power of God. Do you remember when we were making our way through Mark's gospel? Repeatedly, there was this confusing element in Mark's gospel where Jesus would do something. People would glimpse something of who he was and what he was about. And he'd tell them immediately, keep it a secret. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone until he'd risen to life again. Until he had resurrected. Until that fullness of his glory and his goodness was laid bare. Well, now here at the mountain, they see the fullness of God. They see the glory of God, the goodness of God. They don't just hear about it and think about it in abstract terms. It is their experience. It is right there, plain as day, in front of them. And I think we can describe our coming together on a Sunday as something like that. Something like going up the mountain together that we should be gathering with the expectation, with the objective of experiencing the presence of God and seeing and enjoying the glory of God in Christ. We see what happens after that, or, or that sort of more spelled out in detail, really, with what Jesus says to his followers. And it will be helpful for us, I think, to think about it and to remember it in uh, three ways. That their eyes are directed towards him. That their ears are tuned into him. And that their hearts are comforted by him. Their eyes are directed towards him. Their ears are tuned into him. And their hearts are comforted by him. Having come up the mountain into the, the presence of God in the glorious risen Jesus. To see him, to enjoy him, Jesus speaks. Jesus speaks and he points their eyes to him. He, he reveals something to them that perhaps they didn't know before. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Do you know what I think? Uh, an element of the perfect Sunday, of our perfect gathering together should be that when we come together, our gaze, our eyes are picked up, they are lifted up to Jesus. That we don't look at ourselves so much, we don't look so much at our problems and, and, and our struggles so much, but that our gaze is lifted up to him, the risen one. And we see and learn perhaps something new. We experience something new about who he is. If that's missing, then I think we're letting ourselves down. We're not experiencing the perfect Sunday. We're not coming into his presence and into his glory unless our gaze is filled with him and we're learning about him. 
Here he teaches them, he singles in, he hones in on this one true truth that all authority is his. But I, I imagine that as we meet, regularly as we do, week by week, even day by day, having our gaze turned upwards, we should be seeking to see and to know and experience more and more of Jesus. First element, their eyes are directed towards him. But their ears are also tuned into him. And, and we explored this the very first week of 2022. Who are we listening to? But let's not sort of neglect it and forget it and move on. There are so many people who could have been directing their lives. So many people whose words and um, whose authority could be shaping and changing the future direction of these disciples who are gathered. But they gather to Jesus. They see him and their future is changed. Their lives are shaped, they are directed, they are instructed by him. He says to them, go. And he speaks those words to us. We've thought about that as well. Uh, the second week in January, he speaks other words to us. Because when we see who Jesus is, when we live and we experience his glory, when that is there right in front of us, it changes us, it challenges us, it shapes us and it directs us. Not only do we want to see him, but we want to be transformed. We want our next day to be changed by encountering him. And that happens when our ears are tuned into his voice. When they're tuned into him, that our futures are shaped and changed by who he is. And then there's this last element, not just the eyes fixed and the ears tuned in, but the hearts comforted. Because very often when we receive instruction or when we um, uh, recognize the enormity of who he is, we can feel small, we can feel powerless, we can feel insignificant, we can feel daunted. Jesus does not leave them, let them leave in that state. I think it is so wonderful that this is how the entire Gospel of Matthew is finished. This final speech of Jesus concludes. He says to them, And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Imagine the comfort that that would have brought his followers as they face this daunting prospect of being the pioneers, of being the heralds, of being the ones who are stepping out into the danger zone following his voice and rallying against the voices of, of all Jesus's opponents. Imagine the fear, the trepidation that they may have had. Jesus comforts them and says, remember, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Likewise with us. When we gather together and we see more of him, when uh, our futures are are laid bare and changed by him, it can be a daunting prospect. It can be sometimes a crushing prospect, a fear-inducing prospect. And so a vital element of our perfect Sundays and our gathering together has to be this, where we leave comforted by Christ. Hearts warmed, not just challenged, but encouraged. A hope would be renewed in us in who he is and what he has called us to do and how he will be at work to those ends. 
So I think really that should be all of our framework for the perfect Sunday of our gathering together, that our desires, our objectives, our expectations should be this, that we would ascend the mountain, that we would be coming into the presence and the glory of God in the risen Jesus, that when we encounter him, we worship. And these three things at least are happening. Our eyes would be turned towards him. Our ears would be tuned into him. And our hearts would be comforted by him. And that's, I think, a great way for us to assess and to plan and to move forward into this year. I want to leave with these words from Hebrews chapter 13. This encouragement from one Christian in the early church to other Christians contemplating the the kind of Christ that we have come to. He says this, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched. You haven't come to one that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm. That was the picture of the mountain that the Israelites camped at the base at when Moses went up to receive the Ten Commandments. You haven't come to such a mountain with trumpet blasts or voice speaking words to those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. This is Exodus. You have come, he says, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How glorious, he says, that you have not come to all of those mountains that went before, to all of those mountains that were a picture and the beginning of a pattern, All of those mountains that represented humanity trembling in the presence of God. But you have come to Jesus, to God through Jesus and his blood. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we would make it our habit to go up that mountain with our friends, with our family, to come to Jesus, to be awestruck by what we see, to worship to learn to be changed and to leave comforted, encouraged with a renewed scent of hope of what life can be and will be like. That's my perfect Sunday. My prayer is that it would be our perfect Sunday together in Jesus' name. Amen.